Uh, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to be going to chapter 21, and I'm going to read some of the same verses that Linda uh, read during her communion meditation, but we're going to read just a little bit beyond that as well. So Matthew chapter 21, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 11 this morning as we look at uh, maybe a little bit of a deeper meaning in this Palm Sunday that we're here to celebrate today. Matthew 21, starting with verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put, them on, and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray this morning. Father, as we enter this time in your word, I just ask that, um, that your blood be, be applied to us this morning. Your sacrifice, God, open up, illuminate your word through the power of your Holy Spirit to our hearts. Father, I pray that for those listening, for those hearing your word this morning, that it would convict, it would comfort, and it would encourage whatever your word needs to do in their hearts. Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would speak through me. Utilize my voice to speak your words and divide your word rightly today. In Jesus' name, amen. So before we begin to break down this passage of Scripture in depth, I, I kind of want to give us a little bit of a history lesson. So don't, don't, get, don't get lost on me here if you're not a history person, because this is going to take us somewhere. This is really going to set us up. The nation of Israel, the Jewish people, have a long history at this point of captivity, of bondage. The entirety of the year of 2022, we spent talking about the exodus, God pulling them out of Egyptian bondage and their journey to the promised land. That time in Egypt was not the only historical time when the people of Israel, the Jewish people, found themselves in bondage. As we read this passage this morning out of the Gospel of Matthew, we need to understand that it's not been that long since they had had a taste of freedom. They're under Roman captivity right now. That's who's lording over them at this point that Matthew is writing, this event of this triumphal entry. But if we go back not quite 200 years before this, in 167 B.C., they are under Greek occupation. Now, the Greeks you may be familiar with, 
the leader of the Greeks at that time, you may very well be familiar with, a, a, a man named Alexander the Great. In 167, what the Greeks brought with them was they brought with them something called Hellenism, which basically meant that they wanted to culturize the people. They wanted to assimilate the people that they had just conquered, those that they were oppressing. They wanted to assimilate them into their way of life. They wanted to make their, their laws the, the people that they'd conquered. They wanted Greek gods to be their gods. They wanted their government structure to be the other government. Everything about their life, their culture, their ways, their beliefs, their practices, their moral standards, everything, they wanted to have their conquered people assimilate and become just like a Greek. Well, in 167, part of that was they were trying to make a small rule rabbi priest in the, in the Levitical line there, the ones that were leading God's people, they tried to make them sacrifice to a pagan god. And not only did they make them try to make them sacrifice to a pagan god, they wanted them to sacrifice a pig. Which, if you know Jewish law and custom, that would have been completely offensive to them and their belief system. And this rule rabbi stood up and said no. And began something that is known as the Maccabee Revolt. Now there's historical writings on this called the Book of the Maccabee. If you would like to read that, it's a fascinating read. It gives you a lot of details that I'm going to have to skip over on this. But basically, from 167 to 160 B.C., the Maccabee Revolt took place. And it culminated with this battle in which 7,000 of the Jewish army of this Maccabee Revolt faced an army of the Greeks numbered in the 60,000s range. Now we're talking about the greatest fighting force probably on the face of the earth at this moment. If you know anything about Alexander the Great, you know that he was one of the greatest conquerors in history. If not 1A, 1B. Not a good dude, but a powerful guy. And one who made his conquest wide. 7,000 rose up in the face of 60,000 in this battle, and they were victorious. And to mark this, there was a celebration for one of the leading generals, so to speak, in this Maccabee army at that time, whose name was Judas Maccabee. And when he came back into the city, they were lauding him with the sign of victory and throwing the sign of victory at that time. The palm branch. You see, this has a representation of victory. And that goes far back beyond even the Maccabee revolt. Nike, anybody know the name Nike? Other than just do it and the shoes you may have on there. It's a goddess, right? Long before Just Do It, and Phil Knight came up with that, most images you can see of Nike is holding palm leaf. Also, the Maccabee coins that have been discovered since then, on the back, 
in commemoration of the great victory, there is a palm leaf. So this represents victory. This represents freedom from oppression. This represents freedom from bondage and deliverance from slavery. And we see that woven throughout history. Matter of fact, this celebration is still recognized and celebrated every year by the Jewish faith. Anybody have any idea of what that day is or what that time is called? Hanukkah. So this victory, this palm leaf, they tasted freedom. They experienced it, and they saw it. They lived in it. The unfortunate part was, is that freedom didn't last long. Maybe just a couple decades. And then the Romans came in. Oh, Romans. They came in and they were oppressed once more. Now, let's go to this time where Jesus is arriving. They know the history. They know all of this. They know what's supposed to be taking place. They're praying. They're crying out to God. They're doing everything they know to do because this freedom, this one who's coming to, to rid them of this bondage, to free them from this oppression, they're praying. They're, they're calling out, they're crying out. They're, the yearning of their heart is to be a free people once again. One of the interesting things about this Palm Sunday, which is also known as Lamb Selection Sunday, just kind of gives me chills to think about, because the lamb that your family, in the Jewish custom, the lamb that your family was supposed to sacrifice as it's coming closer to the Day of Atonement, as it's coming closer to that day, was supposed to be selected on this day. And this is the day that Jesus makes His entry. Jesus knew what He was doing. And He knew what He was doing long before the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew long before He stood before Pontius Pilate. He knew long before He was carrying His cross to Golgotha. Jesus knew and went willingly even before the trial, the mock trial, began. So we see this, this history, this action taking place in Matthew chapter 21. What you may not know, historically also, is on this day, there would have been two processions. There would have been two parades. We know very well of the procession of Jesus when He comes through riding on the colt and the people waving the palm branches, them laying their cloaks down. There's significance in laying the cloak down as well. Not, not to take too long, but the, the typical average person in the Jewish culture at this time would have had two cloaks. They didn't have a closet full of them. They would have had an undercloak, which would have resembled a very long T-shirt, so to speak. And then they would have had the outer cloak. And what they were doing was they were taking their cloaks off and they were throwing them down, which was an act of surrender, a showing that I will follow you. We see this in 2 Kings whenever Jehu is named king. This president was set that it said that they took off their outer cloaks and they laid them down saying, we will follow you as our king. 
That is what these people are doing at this point. Not only are they laying palm branches down, signifying the victorious nature and the freedom that's getting ready to happen, they were also taking off their cloaks and saying, this is the king which I will follow. Now, here's one of the things that I think that they had in mind when they did this, because we see these same people who were lauding, cheering, shouting Hosanna to Christ as he rode in. We see these same people by the end of the week shouting, crucify him. That's a pretty extreme change, isn't it? And I had, to, I had to ask myself, what would, what would cause this in our thinking? What, in someone's mind, what would cause that within less than seven days, within a week, what would cause them to go from this extreme to this extreme? Well, we see in verse 4, it says, And this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Which prophet was that? It's the prophet Zechariah. And it's Zechariah chapter 9. I'm going to read that passage of Scripture. This is what they would have thought was happening, which they were correct, but we'll see here in just a few moments that their perspective was just a little bit off. So Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, all the way through the end of the chapter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he humble and mounted on a donkey on a coat on a colt the foal of a donkey i will cut off the chariot from ephraim and the war horse from jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth as for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones. And they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl drenched like corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish, and new wine the young women. It's a pretty powerful prophecy, isn't it? I mean, it's wordy. There's a lot of words there. But basically, it was like, the Lord is coming. Whoever rides this colt is coming to make things right. When it was written in Zechariah's time, it was the Greek oppressors. As they read it in Jesus' time, it was the Roman oppressors. But they would have still viewed this prophecy as, He is coming to set the captive free. And they would have rejoiced because of that. That is what they were looking for. Just imagine the scene, if you will. They see this man come riding in. They're going before him, going after him, shouting, Hosanna! 
The king has come. He has arrived. He is here. And in this procession, they're like, let's go find Pilate. Let's go find the armies. Let's overthrow the government. Let's take this back. Let's go into the temple. Let's do what we were born to do. Wait a minute, Jesus, why did you take a left? No, 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 no. We're supposed to go right. All right, now Google Maps is going to have to completely recalibrate. We're going to have to make a U-turn up here. Let's go this way. You see, Jesus, instead of going and overthrowing the government to sit on the physical throne, he went to the temple. See, he came to do exactly what God had in store for him to do. He was just beginning it, and he did it in completely the opposite way as to what the Jewish people thought that he was going to. They thought he was coming to set upon a physical throne to restore them, free them from Roman oppression. They didn't understand the depths that Christ was going to save them, not only from this body physically, but to save them from the sin that they couldn't find any relief for, that they only had hope in a high priest for one time a year. He came to set them free from bondage and oppression indeed, but he came to set them free from the bondage and oppression of sin. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26. I want to read to you what they would have been saying. Psalm 118 closes out what's known as a Hallel, where we get our word hallelujah from. Psalm 113 through 118 would have been something that the Jewish people sang each year during Passover. 118.25 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Can I just stop right there and say that word, the two first two words? Save us. Hosanna. Actually does not just mean to lift up praise to God. It's not totally inaccurate to say that. But it's definitely not completely accurate. Because in the Hebrew, in the original language, it should be translated either save us or save us now. That's what the Jewish people were saying as they were following and leading Christ on this triumphal entry, as they were laying the palm branches down, as they were laying their cloaks at his feet. They weren't just praising God. They were doing that. But they were crying out, save us now. And they're echoing this Hallel that they knew so well that they, that they gave voice to every year. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You see, this passage, they were proclaiming, save us now, because they were echoing to the prophecy that we just read out of Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9 through 17. That's what they would have had in mind. They were ready for the physical restoration. They were ready for the physical freedom. I mean, who could blame them? Honestly. Who could blame it? We are not in quote-unquote bondage and captivity physically, but how many of us still find ourselves crying out, Save us now, O Lord! 
were not, they weren't wrong for that. But their perspective was off. Because that wasn't the message Jesus came with. That wasn't the way that he was doing it. They were expecting to be elevated in the natural, to be elevated in the physical, to have this nature, this personhood, this culture, this faith, everything exalted and put back right, freed from Roman oppression to defeat the enemy. But yet they hear from Jesus in Matthew chapter 16. See, the message and the way that they were going to be restored was just a little bit different than what they were hoping. Matthew chapter 16. You can find the page. Verse 24. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You see, I mentioned a little bit earlier that this wasn't the only procession. Jesus was not the only parade that happened in town that day. Because each day on this Sunday, each year on this Sunday, there was another parade that happened that came in the complete opposite gate. And this was the parade of Pilate bringing the army of Rome into the city to remind the people of his authority. You see, Pilate was an extension of Caesar. And Caesar, in their custom, in their culture, was considered to be a god. So Pilate is flaunting his authority as someone who is to be worshipped, someone who is to be revered, someone who has complete and total authority and say over the lives of the people. And he would come in each year, and people would laud him, they would cheer for him, not because they wanted to, because they wanted to keep their lives. They didn't want to be persecuted. They didn't want to be tortured. They didn't want to be martyred. So they would cheer. And at times, Pilate would allow his musicians to come in first. At times, he would allow his foot soldiers to go in first. There were other times that he himself would lead the parade. And then there were times that his archers would lead all done so psychologically they would remember all of the Jews that had been martyred, that Rome had killed over the past couple, you know, 100 to 150 years, just so they would remember this is what's going to happen. This is what you're going to have to face if you decide to try that Maccabee stuff again. There's no area of your life that we don't lord over. The music showed them that anything that you get enjoyment from, guess what? We still lord over that. Foot soldiers, we will still come and we will beat you with our hands, with our swords. I am your governmental representative. There is nothing that you can do from a governmental standpoint because I have authority over that. And even if you were decide to decide to run and try to flee, there's no distance you can get from my archers. You see, there is no escape from Roman captivity and influence. That's the message that he wanted 
that parade, that procession to convey to the people. I think it's significant. Now, I don't know if it took place at the same time. I, knew, I know it took place the same day as Jesus' entry. We'd be entering into a lot of speculation to try to say that it took place at the exact same time. It may have, but we don't know that for sure. But what I do think that that represents, and I do think what that symbolizes for us, is that we have to make a decision in our life on this day. I think we need to figure out which procession, which parade are we going to be a part of. You see, because while one was represented by a palm, palm branch of victory, the other was represented by war, by weaponry. Now, I don't know if their archers led this parade this particular day or not, but I know that in times past they had. This bow would have served as a reminder that there is no distance too great. There is no fleeing from this that you can have. We have to make a decision today. Are we going to be part of the procession of the parade that lauds man and authority just to keep our peace, to keep from being persecuted, keep from being ridiculed? This one that brings physical reward, physical blessing, and things that may be just a little bit more peaceful in our lives at this point, or are we going to be a part of this? You see, the reason that I think the reason that I think that people were able to go from this to that so quickly in that week it's because Jesus didn't meet their expectations. See, they were wanting the warrior king. Are we really any different? Can I ask you that? When Jesus doesn't meet our expectations, don't we fight that same battle? Let me, let me go even a step further and use verbiage that we may not be comfortable with using. When Jesus disappoints us, don't we fight that same struggle as well? When Jesus is asking us to lay down our lives, when he's asking us to take up our cross, when he's asking us to sacrifice, when he's asking us not to worry about our health, when he's asking us not to worry about our prosperity, when he's asking us not to worry about any of these monetary gains, for what should it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his soul? In those moments, don't we struggle with that too? I know I, know I do. So what do we do when we face this? What do we do when we're, we're, we're really on board with this Palm Sunday thing and we really have this victory in mind? But then things change. Maybe the healing we were praying for doesn't happen. Maybe the breakthrough that we were so desiring doesn't happen. Maybe that relationship that we wanted to see restored doesn't happen. What happens when we get passed over at work over and over and over and over and over again? What happens when these things that we're expecting 
Jesus to do doesn't happen. I want, I want to introduce one word to you of the posture we need to take. It's the word lament. Lament. One third of the Psalms are Psalms of Lamentations. There's a whole Old Testament book that was written on lamenting. Three areas of lamenting that I think that we need to concentrate on is number one, don't ignore what's going on in you. All right, when you're disappointed, when your perspective was one way, but Jesus came in another way, don't ignore that. Don't try to suppress that. Don't try to push that down and act like it's not a reality. If you want to take that approach, you can take the book of Psalms and pretty much take it out of your Bible. Because that's what we see. We see psalmists who are dealing with difficult times, difficult things, things that they weren't expecting, things that they would have never, ever chosen. Don't ignore it. Don't try to suppress it. But then, to build on that, make sure you turn your focus on Him during these times. If we're going to lament biblically, then we're recognizing and realizing that this stuff that we're feeling and that we're facing is real. But instead of turning to worldly outlets, which can only leave us more hollow and more empty inside and lead us only further down the hole and the trap of sorrow and sickness and depression, we turn to Him and we make Him our focus now listen there's there's different ways to do this because it's one thing to just say oh just focus on him okay great thanks spend time with him spend time in his word seek help turn to people who are close to you turn to people who are qualified seek help but never ever place them anyone else anything else above him in your life focus on him do what you need to do after that. And then the last thing, trust in Him as your source. How many of you have been sick with something this winter? Oh, there was like four hands. Come on now. Y'all miss church more than that. I got to count. All right. I got a Sunday school board in there with stars on it. When you're like sick, where do we go most of the time? We go to the doctor, right? Because we don't want to be sick. Because we recognize that God has gifted and called and placed talents in people's lives to be able to help us with that. You're still trusting God as the source, but you're also recognizing that He works in different ways than what we think he works sometimes. I just want to interject this side note. If you're struggling with mental health, if you're really finding that as a battle that you can't overcome yourself, do you realize that God has gifted men and women to help you with that too? And you should be reaching out. Amen? Just like when we're sick in our body. We never take away from Jesus being the source, but we recognize that His definition of source and my definition of source is often very different. Which one are you going to choose today? Are you choosing 
the palm branch, regardless of what your expectations are, regardless if Jesus meets them or doesn't meet them? Or do you do like the majority of the crowds and you turn immediately once that expectation is not met? Once Jesus disappoints you with what He's doing, do you turn and do you go to the bow? I want to ask the praise team if they would to come back up this morning. And we're going to put a challenge up here on the board. This is the question that I want to challenge you with today. Are you crying Hosanna today to the Jesus that is or the Jesus you want Him to be? Because the two could be very different. The two oftentimes are very different in our heart. Are you crying today, save me now? Are you crying that to Him who He is? Or are you crying that out to Him who you want Him to be?